In the news this week, it was pointed out that we are now entering into the third year of this coronavirus pandemic. Isn't that amazing that we've been dealing with this now for two years and it's still ongoing. It's, it's, it's not over yet. Uh, we're dealing with new variants, of course. And actually, the statistics say that the case numbers are higher than they've ever been in the course of the whole last two years. There are more cases. Thankfully, the current variant, at least, is not as severe in, in terms of uh, symptoms and outcomes, but we're still in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic. There's been a lot of controversy about how our government and governments in other places in the world, but specifically here, we've talked about how our government uh, has handled this pandemic crisis, and there's been a lot of controversy and contention. Uh, health, the way that the health authorities have dealt with this has been particularly scrutinized, and really some pretty serious accusations and claims have been leveled against those who've been controlling making decisions. I'll just throw out one statistic for you to, to indicate that probably they are, they are um, reasonably criticized. Did you know that the, the U.S. has a little less than 5% of the total world population, 4.9, something like that? Something just less than 5% of the world's population resides in the United States. But in the United States, we've had 15% of deaths worldwide due to the coronavirus. Well, you know, if you just compare those numbers, 5% of the world population, but 15% of the deaths in, recorded in the world, I'm going to tell you, that probably indicates that there's been some real failure on the part of people making decisions as to how we would handle this pandemic crisis. Uh, we're, not, we're not going to engage in the politics of this matter, although they have. We're not going to engage in the politics of this matter. But I do want to just use something a phrase that they have coined and popularized during the course of this pandemic. The phrase that I have in mind is this one. Follow the science. Follow the science. How often have we been told, just follow the science? Of course, our concern is that the people in control maybe and probably are not following the science. But again, we're not going to engage in the politics of that controversy. What we want to do is we want to latch on to that phrase, follow the science. It's a reasonably good phrase, right? It's a good thing to follow the science, honestly and truthfully. We want to follow the science this morning to discuss some things that are actually way more important than the, than the pandemic, uh, than our government response to the pandemic, to all the politics and controversy associated with that. We want to use this phrase, follow the science, and apply it to some things way more important, things about God, things about salvation, things about eternity. It's good, it's reasonable to say, and we should follow the science. And so we'll talk about that for a few minutes here this morning. We want to stop briefly to say thank you for being here today. We appreciate you very much. There's been a lot of Bad weather, and there's been a lot of sickness right here among our members at College View, but we've got a good crowd assembled this morning, and hopefully this means we have gotten past this most recent outbreak, and, and hopefully we're going to have uh, some time of good health that we can enjoy. God has blessed us so richly, and, and we need to cer certainly be grateful for all that He has done for us. And one of those things they've done for us make it possible for us to be here and assemble this morning, and we're glad that you're here to be a part of it. And we especially welcome those 
who are visiting with us today. All right, so we, we want to talk about following the science. And we wish that all men would follow the science in regards to, for instance, the question of creation versus evolution. Uh, it, it is, in fact, true that this, this has science involved in it. The question as to whether there was a supernatural creation of all things or whether there was just some natural evolution of things, that's a question that is deeply rooted in science. And we wish men would follow the science on this question because actually the science is on our side. I'm going to have to move rather quickly uh, this morning to cover the material I want to cover. And lots more can be said about everything that I'm going to say but I just make some observations. First of all, we understand that the general theory of evolution is not a fact. It's never been proven and, in fact, cannot be proven. Um, when we talk about general evolution, I hope you understand what we mean. We're not talking about you know, the evolution within a species. For instance, even among human beings. Human beings today are typically on average much taller than our ancestors who lived centuries ago. And so there's been sort of an evolution among humans to the fact that we are bigger, we're taller than our ancestors were. That's a form of evolution. That's called specific evolution, evolution within a species. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the general theory of evolution. The general theory of evolution says that at some time in the distant past, uh, nothing was alive. And somehow or another, life sprang from non-living matter. Now, we don't know how that happened. We've never been able to reproduce that outcome, even in the best laboratory conditions. That's never been achieved. We don't know, we don't know how that happened, but the general theory of evolution says at some point in the past, it had to have happened, that life sprang from non-living matter. And then a single living cell, a single living cell resulted and, and then it began to multiply and divide and mutate and change and all the living things that we see on planet Earth today, millions, billions of different living things that we see living on planet Earth today, all evolved from that single original source. That's the general theory of evolution. And I want to tell you, that is not a fact and it has not been proven, although... Very often in our world, people talk about it as though it is an established fact. It's not proven and never has been proven, never can be proven. Let me read you a quote from a fellow named Lauren Easley, an anthropologist. He says, quote, With the failure of these many efforts, science was left in the somewhat embarrassing position of having no postulate theories of living organisms which it could not demonstrate. After having chided the theologian for his reliance on myth and miracle, science found itself in the uneven, unenviable position of having to create a mythology of its own, namely the assumption that what, after long effort, could not be proved to take place today had, in truth, taken place in the primeval past. And so here's, a, here's an evolutionist who's honest enough to admit that it can't be proven. They want to ridicule Christians but they said, we, we're actually believing in a mythology of our own, he says. It's not proven and cannot be proved. The fact of the matter is that even evolutionists themselves are not in agreement. In an introduction to Charles Darwin's book, uh, The Origin of Species, a fellow named Thompson wrote this in the introduction to the, one of the printings of 
the origin of species. He said, quote, as we know, there's a great divergence of opinion among biologists, not only about the causes of evolution, but even about the actual process. This divergence exists because the evidence is unsatisfactory and does not permit any certain conclusion. It is therefore right and proper to draw the attention of the non-scientific public to the disagreements among evolutionists. Another named Francis Hitching wrote, to put it at its mildest, one may question an evolutionary theory so beset by doubts among even those who teach it. It encompasses extraordinarily large areas of ignorance. The theory is so inadequate that it deserves to be treated as a matter of faith. And so even the evolutionists are not in agreement. So what about following the science? If the so-called scientists who teach this can't prove it, and they don't even agree among themselves about how it supposedly happened, why would we say that there's no science there? We can't follow the science and believe in evolution. Even evolutionists admit that. Evolution is actually anti-scientific. We don't have time to dive deeply into any of these topics. But, But actually, the theory of evolution if it were to be accepted, would contradict so many known laws of science. For instance, uh, a couple of basic laws of science are the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Second law of thermodynamics basically says, over time, things wind down, slow down, and dissipate. Right? So if you have a, a, a boiling hot pot of water uh, on the kitchen stove, and, you, and, and what happens to it over time? Well, it cools down. It assumes room temperature, right, over time. That's called the second law of thermodynamics. It's also called the law of entropy. And the law of entropy says over time, things do not become more complex. Over time, things become less complex. We were out at Joel's yesterday, and we cut down a great big old oak tree. Now, the reason we had to do that is because Joel was out of firewood, and he needed firewood last night. And so we were cutting wood for him to burn in his stove last night. But if we had cut that big tree down and just left it lay there, what would we expect to happen out of that big old oak tree? Would we expect to go back in a few years and find that it had constructed itself into a house? No, nobody would believe that. We know if we left it lay there that over time it would disintegrate, become, it wouldn't, it was in an organized form when we dropped it yesterday, it was in the form of a tree, but over time it would become in a disorganized uh, state, it would go back to the dirt and the ground around it, right? That's the second law of thermodynamics, that's, that's the law of entropy. Evolution says that just exactly the opposite happened, that things started in a completely disordered state, and then became more organized on its own. That doesn't happen in nature. Science says that that does not happen. And so what we're saying here is evolution is actually anti-scientific. It goes against the known laws of science. I'll tell you another law of science that we all understand very well is called the law of biogenesis. You know this law well. The, the law of biogenesis simply says Life comes from life, and living things produce after their own kind. Very simple. Uh, God instituted the law of biogenesis in Genesis chapter 1, where Brent read for us earlier. God, of course, established all the natural laws. 
But the law of biogenesis, think of this. Life comes from life. Evolution says no. Life came from non-living matter. Life produces its own kind. So you're going to go out in the springtime here in a few weeks and you're going to plant your garden. You're going to plant a row of beans and a row of corn and a row of squash and a row of okra. And you know that in each of those rows where you planted the seeds, that's what will come up. We're actually very dependent upon that law of biogenesis. Life produces after its kind. One of the ladies announces that she's pregnant. Oh, good, good. I wonder what she'll have. I wonder if she'll have a a cat or a dog. No, she will have a human being. Life comes from life and living things produce after their own kind. Law of biogenesis. The, The... General theory of evolution argues just exactly the opposite, right? That life came from non-living matter, and then over time, all kinds of different things produced different things. They didn't continue to produce after their own kind. Law of biogenesis. The, the, the general theory of evolution is not scientific. Uh, we, we could go on. There's a lot more could be said about that. But we just wish people would follow the science in these regards. The fossil record clearly says that evolution did not occur. Uh, we understand fossils. The fossils are the remains of things that were once alive that got buried, probably rapidly covered uh, uh, when, when there was a flood or some other thing that moved sediment around. And these living things got buried up. And instead of totally decaying, they left an impression in the sedimentary rock that, that, that surrounded them. They left a fossil. We understand fossils. Uh, now, if the theory of evolution is true, the general theory of evolution, we would, what we would expect to find is that way, way back in time, some very simple life forms came to exist. And then... We would be able to see that in the fossil record. We'd be able to see those very, very simple life forms gradually evolving to higher forms of life. And we'd be able to see that transition taking place from one life form to another. For instance, uh, evolutionists tell us that our modern day birds evolved from the reptile family. That birds evolved from reptiles. So birds evolved from frogs and lizards, okay? That's what the general theory of evolution says. So what we would expect to see in the fossil record is some some evidence of something that wasn't quite a frog anymore, but it wasn't a bird yet either. It was something in between. It was a transitional form between reptiles and birds. That's what we would expect. Because, because they tell us evolution took long times, millions upon millions of years to happen. There would have been plenty of opportunity for fossils to be laid down showing this transition from one form to another. You know what we find in the fossil record? Zero evidence of that. There's no evidence in the fossil record. Even Charles Darwin said this about that. He said intermediate links between life forms. He says geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic change And this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory of evolution. So here's the the guy who's sort of called the father of modern evolutionary thought. He wasn't the first to think that, but he kind of formalized it. 
And he says, you know, we got a problem here because there are no fossils. The fossils don't prove evolution. He says, and in his mind, he said, that's possibly the strongest argument that can be made against the theory of evolution. There aren't any fossils. Follow the science, man. Follow the science. There are no fossils. Evolution did not happen. We would also argue that there's really not been any time for evolution to occur. So everybody knows, everybody knows that if evolution were true, it took a long, long time to happen. Uh, usually, evolutionists would argue that this, the Big Bang happened about 20 billion years ago. You understand the Big Bang. All of the matter of the whole universe was compressed into a tiny little center point. And, and the pressures and the heat and it were so intense that the thing exploded. Big Bang. And hot gases emitted from that Big Bang went hurtling out uh, from the center. It took a long time. It was so hot and so intense. It took a long time for it to cool down and be able to form solids. For instance, they say that our galaxy and our solar system probably formed about 4 billion years ago. So it took a long time after the Big Bang for everything to slow down and cool off enough to begin to form solids. But about 4 billion years ago, planet Earth uh, was formed. And then over time, millions upon millions of years, life began, life evolved. We got to where we are today. That takes a lot of time. That takes a whole lot of time. We're talking about billions of years. But the science says that doesn't seem to fit with what we see. For instance, here on, pop, uh, on, on planet Earth, you could do population studies about how population grows and expands. The, po- the, the current day population of the Earth doesn't allow that there could have been humans on Earth for so long uh, uh, reproducing themselves there's there's the depletion of the earth's magnetic field we can measure it the earth's magnetic field is is diminishing rapidly uh so if you know how fast the magnetic field is depleting you can calculate backwards and say how strong it would have been not so very long ago and just ten thousand years ago the earth's magnetic field would have been so strong that the earth would disintegrate it from its own internal forces the depletion of the Earth's magnetic field says the Earth is not that long. It isn't that old. It hasn't been here that long. Uh, shrinkage of the sun. Uh, back in 1979, scientists were finally able to measure the, the, the shrinkage of the sun. This is not too surprising. You know, the sun is just a burning mass of matter out there uh, 93 million miles away from us. What happens when things burn? Well, they burn up, right? And so that's what's happening to the sun. The sun is burning up. In fact, they were able to measure that the diameter of the sun is decreasing five feet every hour. Well, that seems, that seems like a lot, doesn't it? But it's not that bad. It's only one-tenth of one percent every century. The, earth, uh, the sun is enormous. And even though it's shrinking, it's shrinking slowly at the rate of one-tenth of one percent every hundred years. Okay, so we know how fast it's getting smaller. Again, we can calculate backwards to see how big it used to be a hundred thousand years ago. Just one hundred thousand years ago. That, that's 
current events to an evolutionist. But a hundred thousand years ago, the sun would have been twice as big as it is today. You want to talk about long, hot, dry spells in August. <laughs> Life on planet Earth would be un, uh, un, impossible. The Earth would be uninhabitable. Just a hundred thousand years ago. That's nothing to an evolutionist. But again, that argues for a young Earth, not an Earth old enough that evolution could have occurred. One other argument, accumulation of cosmic dust. You know, the, the Earth is being bombarded from particles from outer space constantly. Most of them burn up in our atmosphere. On the moon, though, there is no atmosphere. And it's also being bombarded from those particles of outer space. You know, there was big concern when we sent men to land on the moon the first time. The, the concern was that the accumulation of cosmic dust would be so deep that the landing craft would just sink up. They wouldn't, it would be impossible to even land. They figured that there'd be many, many, many feet of cosmic dust accumulated on the surface of the moon. There was only a few inches when they got there, indicating that the moon hadn't been there all that long, accumulating dust. Lots of studies indicate that our Earth and our universe is young, not old. There hadn't been nearly enough time for evolution to take place. Actually, the fact of the matter is we have the explanation that works. Sci the evolutionary scientists do not have an answer. We need to follow the science. Science says evolution didn't happen. We have the answer. Genesis 1 verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So an all-powerful, supernatural God created all things. And He did that in six literal 24-hour 24 24 days less than 10,000 years ago. That's what the Bible tells us, and that what, that's what fits all of the scientific evidence that is available. In Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth, for He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Hebrews 11, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Again, this is what science indicates to us, and it's what the Bible says, we just need to follow the science on that. Let me move real quickly. I may have way more material here than I'm going to be able to include in a reasonable time. Let me suggest we need to follow the science on the question of inspiration of the Scriptures. And I see my word got kind of broken up there. I didn't notice that earlier. That's all supposed to be one word, inspiration uh, of the Bible. What about the Bible and its inspiration? Well, without supernatural revelation, there's no logical or reasonable way to explain, for instance, the unity of the Bible. We know that the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years by approximately 40 different men. Now, those 40 different men, uh, of course, living over that long period of time, um, they, they, most of them, a few of them would have known each other, but most of them didn't even know one another. They came from a, a wide variety of social and economic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, differed tremendously. In fact, the Bible wasn't even initially written in the same language. Different languages are found in the Bible, primarily Hebrew and Greek in the New Testament. 
How would you get 40 different men to write a document and when it's all done and said, it's a complete agreement, there's no provable contradiction anywhere in the Bible? How would you argue that? Well, I want to tell you the only way to answer that is that the Bible was inspired of God. That's the only way we can account for the unity of the Bible. We could talk about all the fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. Uh, There's just hundreds of them. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus himself. Uh, So prophecies made about the coming Messiah, fulfilled by Jesus. You've probably heard the story of a mathematician named Peter Stoner who did some mathematical calculations about the possibility that someone could just by chance fulfill the prophecies made about Jesus. And so he chose eight prophecies. Remember, there are over 300, but he chose eight prophecies about Jesus. For instance, born in Bethlehem and so forth and so on, descended of David and so forth and so on. And he, and he made a mathematical calculation of what would be the probabilities that a person could just come along and by chance fulfill just eight of the 300 prophecies about Jesus. His conclusion was that the chance of that, one in 10 to the 17th power. 10 to the 17th power, that's a number so big that even our government can't calculate at that level when it talks about national debt. 10 to the 17th power. Here's a way to visualize it. If you took 10 to the 17th power number of silver dollars, it would cover the whole state of Texas two feet deep. And so you cover the whole state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Then you mark one. You mark one and you throw it in amongst all the rest and mix it up. You turn a blindfolded man loose at Texarkana and tell him he can walk as far and as long as he wants, but at some point he has to reach down to pick up one coin. What's the chance he's going to pick up the one marked coin? One in 10 to the 17th power. Impossible, right? Impossible. And so this man, Peter Stoner, in a book called Science Speaks, Science Speaks, he says, says it'd be impossible for the prophecies of Jesus to be fulfilled accidentally. Fulfilled prophecy is the only reasonable, even scientific explanation for the inspiration of the Bible. Actually, there's all kinds of scientific accuracy denoted in the Bible. You know, very often we, I, I think we should say, and we always often do say, the, the, the Bible's not a science book, was never intended to be a science book, but it does touch upon things that science could later come along and prove or disprove. For instance, a, a very simple one is the shape of the earth. The Bible says the earth is round. Men didn't typically believe the earth was round, even until recent centuries. People didn't believe the earth was round. But the Bible said in Isaiah 40, verse 22, that the earth is round. So the, Bible, so the Bible's not a science book, but it touches on things that science would later prove or disprove. And in every instance, the, the Bible has been proven to be true. It does not contradict what science came along later and discovered. If you think about that, that's a positive proof of inspiration. If the Bible was just written by men, they wouldn't have incorporated in their superstitions and their ignorances as they wrote. But the, actually, in my opinion, what's most impressive about the Bible is not so much what it reveals scientifically, but what's not in the Bible. Because if, if men had written it on their own, they would have incorporated those 
erroneous concepts into their writing and they didn't. I want to argue to you that even scientific accuracy points to the inspiration of the Bible. And so again, let's just follow the science. Follow the science. Here, here's, real quickly, here's an interesting argument that the famous denominational preacher Charles Wesley uh, originated. This is called Wesley's Logical Argument for Divine Revelation. He said the Bible must be the invention of either, one, good men or angels, two, bad men or devils, or three, of God himself. He says, the Bible could not be the invention of good men or angels, for they neither would or could make a book and tell lies all the time they were writing it, saying, thus saith the Lord, when in fact it was their own invention. So the Bible didn't come from good men or angels. It could not be the invention of bad men or devils, for they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their own souls to hell for eternity. It's not logical that bad men or devils would have originated the Bible. He says, therefore, I draw this conclusion that the Bible must be given by divine inspiration. Pretty good argument, wouldn't you agree? Follow the science on the inspiration of the Bible. Finally, and I see that my, my word is broken again here, follow the, the science on the resurrection of Jesus. Again, you know, a lot of people say, well... Believing is an act of blind faith. We say it is absolutely is not. We believe that faith should be based upon evidence. And we have evidence. We have evidence for creation. We have evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. We have evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And we just need to follow the science. We can be absolutely certain that Jesus rose from the dead. And I want to I emphasize, especially to our young people, we can be absolutely certain that Jesus rose from the dead for several reasons. One of them is the empty tomb. It is an undeniable reality that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty on the first day of the week as is recorded in the Bible. And the reason we know that is because it wasn't just the disciples of Jesus who were saying, hey, the tomb is empty. It wasn't just the disciples who were saying that. It wasn't just his friends. It was his enemies who also admitted the Jews and the Romans acknowledged that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty. And the fact of the matter is that they never denied the empty tomb. This is, this is in, in legal terms, this is called positive evidence from a hostile source. And it's actually the strongest kind of evidence that there is. In, in, in essence, what it means is if a Source admits a fact decidedly not in its own favor, then that fact is genuine. And so when the Jews and the Romans acknowledge that the tomb was empty, then that, that takes that question off the table. The tomb was empty. Even the enemies of Jesus acknowledged that the tomb was empty. And they never, and they never argued that. And also they never produced the body of Jesus. The tomb was empty. We could talk and do often talk about the consistent and constant, relentless testimony of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. You know, there were above, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there were more than 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus. Uh, and, and they lived their lives thereafter according to what they had seen and experienced. They had seen Jesus risen from the dead and they lived thereafter 
serving Him even to the point of death. That relentless and consistent testimony of the eyewitnesses is, is certainly, in my view, the most powerful proof of the resurrection. There's an interesting argument, and we'll do this real quickly, but there's actually an interesting argument from circumstantial evidence. You know, in a court of law, sometimes you can prove a case just by circumstantial evidence, even if you don't have any direct or hard evidence. And in this case, we have lots of circumstantial evidence that says the resurrection happened. For instance, uh, the church. The church began right there in Jerusalem where all the events of the crucifixion took place and where the resurrection was claimed. If you were trying to pull a fraud on the public, I don't think you would have done it in Jerusalem. You maybe would have gone off to Rome or Athens or someplace else and began to talk about what had happened over there in Jerusalem. But you wouldn't start telling the story right in Jerusalem if there was a strong potential that it could be disproved. The, the church began in Jerusalem. It all started there and it grew rapidly. We could talk about baptism as was practiced by the early church. It's symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But there would, it would be a meaningless thing if Jesus, in fact, was not resurrected. We could talk about the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake here in just a few minutes. The Lord's Supper celebrates the sacrificial death of Jesus, but you don't celebrate defeats. You celebrate victories. And although Jesus was crucified and, and, and terribly tortured and murdered and shed his blood, he was resurrected, which makes this a thing to celebrate, not a thing to grieve. Again, I would argue the changed lives of the people who witnessed the resurrection is proof positive that the resurrection happened. So, our point then is follow the science. Please just follow the science. And if you do, the conclusion is clear and simple. God created the whole physical universe, including us human beings. God spoke to us miraculously through His inspired Word. And God sent His Son to die for our sins and resurrected Him from the dead on the third day. I want to tell you, the science says these things are true. Follow the science. Do you believe these things? Will you follow the science? And if you do, then, would you be willing to obey Him? That's the simple question. The truth is there. and It's verifiable. And therefore, we should react to it. We should follow the science. We should learn the truth and obey it in our lives. That simple truth is, upon hearing the truth, you should believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you've not done that, we hope you'll make that decision without delay. If you're a Christian already, it doesn't make sense to stay in opposition to God. If you're a Christian and you've fallen away, the only logical thing is to come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If you need that... We'd be glad to pray with you and for you. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.